School of Education with 100% online master's or specialist degrees in fields like teaching, leadership, higher education, and more. More information at rebelteacher.com. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi is two steps closer to historically stringent abortion restrictions. These children have a unique DNA. They are not the woman's body. They are separate. State taxpayers have spent $1.2 million in fighting something that they know or knew at the time was unconstitutional. We'll hear from both sides. Plus, a proposed teacher pay raise is another step over to reality. And anti-homelessness advocates are putting federal dollars to work in the fight to house all Mississippians. Then Eudora Welty is in a familiar place, our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is two steps closer to once again having the strictest abortion laws in the nation. The House and Senate passed separate bills yesterday that would ban most abortions once a fetal heartbeat is detected about six weeks into pregnancy. Republican Senator Joey Fillingain of Sumrall talks about the bill with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Well, I think the vast majority of Mississippians, about 65 percent in the latest poll from the Mason-Dixon organization last year, are in favor of protecting uh, the unborn child after the time the heartbeat is detected. So once they know that the child is a living being, 65% of Mississippians would have that child be protected. So I think we're just following along with what the vast majority of our constituents would like us to do. This is an issue that has come up year after year in terms of how to limit abortion. So is it really based on Mississippians' opinions, or is this just um, a focus of the Republican Party? We are representative of our district, so if we were proposing these types of bills year after year and the constituents were not in favor of that, we wouldn't be here next time around. They would vote us out and replace us with someone else who more closely aligned with their viewpoint. So I think it is accurate to say that we're reflective of the constituents we represent. What is in this bill specifically? Two points. Uh, the first point is that it's an informed consent uh, requirement that um, every woman that would seek an abortion, if this bill were to become law in Mississippi, would first be tested uh, with an ultrasound to see if there was a fetal heartbeat present in the unborn child at that stage in the pregnancy. And that's a little different for everybody because everyone develops their own pace and a little differently than every other person. But if a fetal heartbeat were to be detected, then the woman would be informed of that. She would sign a form that the abortion provider would present to her stating, you are aware that uh, the child that you would abort um, has a fetal heartbeat and give some statistics on the probability of carrying that child to full term, and she would then be informed of that. Then the second piece of the bill states that if, in fact, a fetal heartbeat is detected, except in a couple of exceptions, which would include to save the life of the mother, to save any um, bodily functions um, that would be put in jeopardy were the abortion not to take place, or if there was no fetal heartbeat detected, 
then the abortion would be prohibited in Mississippi. And in terms of the doctors, what are penalties for the physicians? Um, there are two different sections. Um, the first one, I think, responds to the, the question of what if the doctor just ignores this law and does not even test for a fetal heartbeat, for instance, before performing the abortion. In that, for instance, the penalty section would be left to the medical board that does the licensing. So and that person could be um, deemed, as it were, penalized by not having their license renewed or by having their license taken away. Um, so that would be the, the first thing if they didn't even check and didn't follow the protocol that this law lays out. The second thing, um, there's a punishment section towards the end of the bill that says, in the event the doctor does do the test and you do detect a fetal heartbeat, but you go ahead and do the abortion anyway, counter to what the dictates of this law would say, then it would be a misdemeanor for the doctor, not for the woman. The woman is specifically exempted from any penalties in this bill. It's specifically for the abortion provider, and it's a misdemeanor of up to six months in jail or up to $1,000 fine or both. This is an an emotional issue for women on both sides of the aisle, Mm -hmm. but what do you say to women who say, I want to be able to make this decision about my body, and I have men voting and telling me what I can and cannot do? Well, I find it so interesting when we try to find this as a women's issue or a men's issue, because statistically, 50% of the children aborted are men, and 50% of those aborted children are women. So I think it affects us all equally. Um, for the, one, the women that would try to make the argument that this is a part of my body and I should have ownership over that piece of, of flesh and do with it what I would, the Supreme Court has always disagreed with that viewpoint. As far back as Roe v. Wade and then following with the subsequent cases like Casey and Webster and Gonzalez, the, the Supreme Court has always recognized that there is life at stake here, and they do a balancing act in these different cases They balance the right of the woman to have an abortion, uninhibited, as it were, versus the state's interest in protecting the life of the unborn. Republican Senator Joey Fillingain of Sumrall. Democratic Senator Derek Simmons is from Greenville. He is minority leader in the Senate and talks with our Desiree Frazier about why he's not in favor of the proposed abortion restrictions. Last year, the same body uh, passed a 15-week abortion ban, and a federal judge ruled it unconstitutional. And so I think it's very uh, disingenuous uh, for the supporters of the bill to come back less than a year and pass an even more restrictive MPB bill would like to, think- to go from 15 weeks to six-week ban. The amendment that you brought before the chamber failed as well. That's correct. Last year uh, I brought the same amendment uh, for rape and incest exception uh, to having an abortion, and it failed. And this year again it failed. But, but what your listeners or what your viewers should really know uh, is the fact that a federal judge has ruled uh, the law, the 15-week ban, unconstitutional. State taxpayers have spent $1.2 million in fighting something that they know or knew at the time that we considered it was unconstitutional. And to come back in 2019 and to, I guess, do what, what we call legislative uh, prediction, trying to figure out uh, what the makeup of the Supreme Court is going to be and pass laws based upon the Mississippi bill going to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, it's just not a, a wise use of taxpayer funds when the current law clearly uh, states that it's unconstitutional. That law is now at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, so it's not a done deal yet. It's not a done deal, but other laws uh, that 
have passed and other uh, precedents of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, basically give indication that the court will likely rule that it's unconstitutional. A 15-week ban was unconstitutional. A six-week ban, which is like nine weeks less, uh, I'm sure it's going to be unconstitutional. The House passed a similar bill. Your thoughts on this becoming law and what it means for the state? This is an election year, and uh, the supporters of the bill want to be able to, in an election year, to say that they did something for one of their most conservative policies, which is banning abortions. Um, And I think that uh, despite it being an election year, we should want to pass policies that are in the best interest of Mississippians. And this, uh, these decisions should be left to a woman, her family, and her, and, and her doctor. Why is this an important issue for you? It's an important issue for me because um, we don't do the right thing for people who uh, are not able to uh, provide for children. Uh, we have had Medicaid expansion bills, where the leadership have killed Medicaid expansion bills. We've had all kind of measures uh, where we need to fully fund education, and we don't put our money where our mouths are regarding education. Uh, we don't do anything to support families or support working women or to support children. Uh, but when it comes to a woman making a decision that will, she will have to live with for the rest of her life, we want to actually legislate that. And I don't think these things should be legislated. You mentioned the cost um, behind this. The argument to that that was brought up during the debate is that the attorney general's office has lawyers that are working anyway. If they're not working this case, they'll be working another case. And so it's costing the state the same amount of money either way. Untrue. The opportunity cost for you being here and not interviewing someone else True enough, you are working, but if you have another uh, story to do, then you would probably have better use spending your time doing that story, but you decided to be here. Um, So I just think that what is lost in that argument is the opportunity cost. Yes, we have state employees who work on behalf of the state at the attorney general's office, but there are costs and there there is their labor that they actually have to put forth in order to Uh, fight for something that they otherwise would have to fight for, but for this body passing another unconstitutional uh, bill or law. Democratic Senator Derek Simmons of Greenville. Since the House and Senate passed different versions of the bill, they will now have to work toward an agreement before sending it to Republican Governor Phil Bryant. The governor says he will sign whatever version of the bill reaches his desk. In other news, Mississippi teachers could see a lump sum pay raise of $500 as a one-time bonus. Senate Bill 2770 initially called for giving teachers a pay raise of $1,000 over two years. Some senators argued the raise is too small. During the debate, an amendment passed that would make the pay raises a one-time bonus for two years. Democratic Senator David Blunt of Jackson says it's not a done deal. Well, we need a teacher pay raise, but the teacher pay raise bill we have right now isn't as good as it should be. And the Democrats in the legislature are going to be fighting to increase that amount before the session is over. According to the Senate, the average teacher's salary is $44,900. The bill heads to the House for more work where members are putting together their own teacher pay raise bill. 
Coming up, anti-homelessness advocates are putting federal dollars to work in the fight to house all Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. You ought to be my valentine. I really like you. I like how you roll. If you haven't picked out a valentine for your car driver in your life, then listen to AutoCorrect for some suggestions. We'll also be able to answer your car repair questions today at 10 a.m. on AutoCorrect on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Organizations in Mississippi are sharing $5 million in federal grant money to help put an end to homelessness in the state. As MPB's Jasmine Ellis reports, the money was awarded by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development to find permanent housing for the homeless. How many do you need? Let me get two back here, guys, and one at the door. Two right here and one at the door. People are lining up for lunch at Stewpot Community Services in Jackson. The nonprofit provides meals and temporary shelter to the homeless. Sherry Lynn Taylor comes to Stewpot for meals. She says she's been homeless since her mom passed away in 2015. I've been staying in an old, empty house that's abandoned. And the people that let us stay in, and they own the house, and they let me stay. And they told me I stay in there as long as I need to. And the only thing that I got in there right now, they helped me. I got some mattresses. I got me some blankets. The only thing I'm looking for now, like, I need a flashlight or some candles, you know. Jill Buckley is with StuPot. She says the organization plans on using the money from HUD to help people move into stable housing. What the data shows is that the less time people spend on the streets, then the better for them long term. So we can help people get back into housing when they show up at our shelters and just need help getting into an apartment or a home. Marika Balico is with Mississippi United to End Homelessness. It's just a simple human right for everyone to be in housing. And so it's important for us to address homelessness. It's important for us to make it such an urgent matter. Balico says last year there were 560 homeless people living in 71 of the state's 82 counties. Jasmine Ellis, MPB News. Coming up, Eudora Welty is in a familiar place, our book club. That's next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we recognize Flonzie Brown-Wright. Flonzie Brown-Wright was one of many Mississippians who helped pioneer the civil rights movement in the South and was the first African-American female to hold public office in the state since Reconstruction as election commissioner in Madison. Flonzie Brown-Wright, pioneer, visionary, and steel magnolia. This has been MPB Moments in Black History. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at 2MississippiMuseums.com slash spirits. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's Eudora Welty put pen to paper countless times in her acclaimed novels and short stories. But Welty also wrote essays, social commentary, tributes, skits, and book reviews. A collection of those writings called Occasions has been compiled and edited by Pearl Amelia McHaney. After several years, the acclaimed collection is now available in paperback. In today's book club, McHaney tells us there was one overriding theme to Welty's works. 
what I think I discovered was that she still, regardless of her perspective or her subject, is still most interested in human relationships. I thought that's what her subject was, but that was absolutely confirmed here. And she approaches human relationships in multiple ways. The relationships that she's writing about, when she's looking back at her first story, Death of a Traveling Salesman, for example, or when she's looking back at her last novel, the Pulitzer Prize winning The Optimist Daughter, and how intimate that is to her, but not her own story, but the most intimate, she says, and the hardest one to write. Or if she's writing about how we teachers need to help people become readers again in the schools, or when she's writing about art or sculpture or painting. So I think she's always engaged with how humans interact, how their feelings are hidden or expressed. She can talk about anything. Was she she an introspective (laughs) woman? She was very introspective through her characters. Her characters are very introspective. And what I have learned in other studies of Welty's work is that she's always reading and writing from the reader's point of view. It's not like she set out and say, well, what would the reader want me to say? But she would listen to her characters. She talks about this a little bit. She would listen to her characters and what would they be thinking? What would they be doing? What would they be saying? So she was introspective in the moment that she was sort of creating. Herself, she was, I would say, more observant. I would use the word observant rather than introspective because she was certainly not a brooding type. She certainly didn't concentrate on things that didn't come to her. She never took her fortune in finding the right agent or getting published or finding the right literary friends or finding the local community friends or her family. She never took that for granted, but she never bemoaned not having it at the moment. Is there a particular piece of writing in this book that really speaks to you or that stands out or you just like a lot? (laughs) Well, I could read you the entire table of contents if you like. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I had trouble trying to organize them in a certain way, but uh, I think... One thing, oh, I could, can I name a several things? Sure, go <laughs> um, ahead. The story that we have come to accept is probably her first written story that we have called Acrobats in the Park. It was probably written in 1935. It wasn't published till much later, actually, in a French journal called Delta. But reading that first story, you see so many marks of things that interested her, the kinds of details, the mysteries of life are in that first story, Acrobats in the Park. And then in that same first section, there are two pieces that she was writing in 1948 to have a whole off-Broadway review of skits and songs. And I just have two little pieces in there. One is her only published play, a little farce called Bye Bye Brevort, named after the Brevort Hotel in New York City. And then so funny and so inimitable, but also representative of her wit is a piece called Women, two exclamation marks, Make Turban in Own Home. It's so funny. It was published in the Jackson Junior League magazine in 1941. University Press of Mississippi just discovered a 1938 review that Welty had written of Out of Africa or a tribute to Flannery O'Connor, for example, or 
a beautiful foreword to a new edition of Virginia Woolf to the Lighthouse. Another story that has been too little read and not really commented on at all, but is also a brilliant, I think, somewhat surrealistic and somewhat postmodern story called A Sketching Trip, which takes place in the Mississippi landscape, going out to an old house, which she actually had taken a picture of. And it's about art and it's about perspective and about time. Yeah, I love it. You love a lot of it, which makes sense because you edited Eudora Welty Occasions, Selected Writings, and it's edited by Pearl Amelia McHaney. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Karen. It's a joy to talk about what I love, which is Eudora Welty's work. And before we leave you, beside the glamour and intrigue of the historic antebellum estates in Natchez is an often overlooked spot. It's the Natchez Museum of African-American History and Culture. Opened by a group of African-American women in 1991, the museum's motto says, we exist to tell our story. Frances Wallace is a tour guide at the museum. Our museum was founded. It was a brainstorm of Mary Lee Davis toes. She was the first African-American female Justice Court Judge here in Natchez, Mississippi. So when she got ready to retire, she decided that our story needs to be told. So she contacted some more, uh, six more ladies to help her to bring that into view. And the theme is we exist to tell our story. That's why the museum exists. Can you give us some examples of some of the things that people will find in your museum? Well, we show where we start with the cotton gin, how it uh, originated, I mean, who invented it, and uh, also it shows how cotton, how it became the cotton kingdom, because from the beginning, Natchez was the second largest trade area, slave trade area. New Orleans was the first, and Natchez was the second. So it shows you, it starts how it evolved. And it started, they did. Natchez was known for its sugar cane. What is your favorite part of the museum? Is there something specific that really um, that really affects you? Well, civil rights is one. And then uh, the other part that affects me is we have a section called Black Natchez. And that a lot of people are not aware of the accomplishments of Blacks here in Natchez that were, had their own jobs. We have portraits of them in our museum that they had and how they look. Very few people recognize, could, could phantom blacks looking like that here in Natchez in the Deep South because they had their, these people had their own jobs. They, they were professionals in their own right. And we had one family the Mazik family, we have a portrait of two of their children in the, in the um, foyer and a, a Mazik mayor. That particular family uh, on the Grove Plantation, which was 625 acres of land, and this was in 1870s. It sounds like there is a lot in the museum to see. And we thank you. Frances Wallace is a tour guide at the Natchez Museum of African American History and Culture. Miss Wallace, thank you so much for sharing uh, some of what we can expect to see at the museum. Well, thank you for letting me share that. The Natchez Museum of African American History and Culture is open Monday through Friday from 10 to 430.
Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's AutoCorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. You can also download the MPB public media app from the Apple or Google Play stores, or you can subscribe to Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade. Open now through August 11th. Details at 2MississippiMuseums.com slash spirits. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission.